Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Before we start this episode, we should mention that we have recently started a Patreon. We have so far a discussion with Michael Barron, who is the guest for The Word of the Speechless, uh, discussing Antwerp by Roberto Bolaño, and we have many, many more exciting episodes planned already. Yes, on the Patreon, you would get two extra episodes a month, and you can find the link in the show notes. For now, though, our book this week is The Inferno by Dante Alighieri, completed in the 14th century, but translated by Kieran Carson in this one. This new translation of Dante's Inferno is by one of contemporary Ireland's most gifted poets, written in a vigorous and inventive idiom, while also reproducing the intricate rhyme scheme that is so essential to the beauty and power of Dante's epic. And we are lucky to be joined by poet and writer Diane Mehta, Her latest collection, Tiny Extravaganzas, was released in October. Welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you join us. Thank you. I'm honored myself. We wanted to start to talk about your poetry collection, which was recently published. So one of the poems in Tiny Extravaganzas includes a reference to the Divine Comedy. It's quick, but it's there. Um, What inspired you to insert this into your work? You know, what is your relationship to Dante? Has it had any influence on your own output as a writer and a poet? Well, first of all, I'm curious which poem you're referring to. The one where um, it's quia. I don't know Italian. Yeah. But it it quotes Virgil telling Dante. It's just, it just is that way. It's because it is. This is part of the main theme of the commedia, right? One of the one of the ideas, but but that is just a brief mention of Dante, sort of at the at the end of that writing cycle for that particular book. I have started a third collection of entirely poems connected to the Divine Comedy, so that is my new project, and I've probably yes. written twenty or thirty poems, maybe thirty five, probably half of which are good, and the others need editing, and that's going to be my project for a couple of years. But I, I don't know. I guess the, the 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 issue with the or the 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 project itself is a conversation, which is what I'm trying to do with Dante right now. So the poems are supposed to be not an homage to Dante, not a kind of direct parallel to Dante, but a way to understand how I feel about his poems or his ideas. Some of which are antiquated. Some of the women. Um, He's not so much of a feminist and (laughs) one would not be surprised at this, but I really wanted to just be in conversation with someone who was not of my time, not of my culture in another language, doing something really remarkable. And the more I got into it, the more I realized there's just nobody who can match Dante in literature, not even Milton. Milton is close, Shakespeare maybe, but really I don't think so. Wow. That's high praise. Bold statement. Yeah. (laughs) One thing is your book is split into three parts and we were thinking if they are not hell, purgatory and paradise in their own way, what, what, what are they? Oh, it's so nice of you guys to talk about my book. I have like <laughs> thousand pages of notes on Dante. So my book does have three sections and I wouldn't say that it parallels the Commedia in terms of 
the Inferno Purgatorio and Paradiso. However, I do think that there is some element of three, not that I'm Christian and have this Trinity in my mind, but there's an, there's a way that three moves that four doesn't, it's two square, there is, and two doesn't, and if there's nothing, then you're kind of lost altogether. So there is yeah. some sort of motion in it, and I'm interested as a poet in duration, and I'm interested in syntax connected to duration and music connected to those things. So there has to be some sort of movement through the book. And in much of the book, as with Dante, now that you're mentioning it, I I was walking. So I was in Italy and I was walking. So at least half of these poems were composed in Italy, which is where my project wow. started. And so I was doing a lot of walking up and down the hillside on, in Umbria, thinking about mostly Dante, because I was listening to lectures. There's these two guys in the great courses that have a wonderful lecture series. So I was listening to their lectures on Dante as a way of preparing to read Dante, because I'd expected to read several translations, or at least one decent translation, at this castle that I was living at for six weeks, and they didn't have the translations I wanted. And my friend Edwin at the New York Review of Books was reading a translation of the Purgatorio that he had just that he had just published, and I was excited to read that, and I thought I would start with the Inferno or one of their Purgatorios and then switch to that, but I didn't get to do that, so I mostly just walked and listened to these things. So I think that had something to do with how these poems evolved, why um, maybe waiting for the qui, or key, if you pronounce it that way in Latin, um, ended up in the book, and why I started moving deeper and deeper into Dante and then into these poems connected to Dante as I got more involved in his language and his themes. Mm. I see. Yeah. But my third book, which is actually deeply connected to Dante, will be split into Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradise. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. They do some of the more direct parallels, and there are narrative versions or imitations of something connected to, say, the Francesca episode or Casella, one of the Francesca in Inferno or Casella or Virgil's journey through Purgatorio or a lot of things in Paradiso, I think, have more poems about Paradiso than anything else. And although people say Paradiso is hard and complex and not so much fun, I love it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But appropriately, we're talking about the opposite of yeah. Paradise today. We usually give a little background on the author just to kind of start out. So Dante was born in Florence in 1265. He served in bureaucratic positions and in 1300 uh, gained a prestigious role in the administration of Florence. At the time, the city was locked in a bloody struggle between political factions. Uh, the following year, on a, on a visit to the Pope in Rome, Dante learned his enemies had come to power. He never saw Florence again, he was, as he was threatened with death if he tried to return. And the Divine Comedy, begun a few years later, was partly inspired by those feelings of exile and that experience of uncertainty. How do you kind of draw from his own life experience and contrast that maybe to the, compare and contrast that to the persona that he presents in the book? I think it's pretty ballsy. <laughs> he's, created, yeah. he's created, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable and it's ambitious and it's also humble at the same time, but that's his project. So 
he wants to be as good as God. He wants to be the person who is taking di the dictation of God, which he says literally at some point. But I think that Dante the Pilgrim, the nerve of putting yourself as a main character in the book, uh, is a strategy because what he what he wanted to do was tell the story of Florence and tell the story of his exile and his life. And he also wanted the story to be greater than that. So he was telling a story of empire, bigger than that. And he was telling a love story, smaller and bigger than that. A, st a story of a woman that he saw, a girl that he saw when he was age, age nine, I think, um, Beatrice or Beatrice in, a, in Italian. He saw her once, she passed by and she died and he fell in love with her. And so this is really, I mean, feels like really an excuse to write a muse to mm. this, this entire poem about. But... It is really a love story. So it's a love story that is also an epic and that includes the history of Rome, of Italy, of the Italian language, of his life, of psychology, of theological concerns, and of the uniting, in his mind, of Christianity with classical themes. And so all these things work throughout the entire book. And he uses himself and his personal journey in a way that allows him to become the poet who over time and over the journey becomes the person who is actually good enough to write the poem. So at the beginning of the poem, he is a poet who's not really the poet who can write this poem. I mean, this is kind of like crazy when you think about it um, time-wise because he, you read the poem that he's already finished and in the beginning, he is not a capable poet, but by the end, he has written this entire poem and he has it in mind. He's very strategic. I think it took him almost 10 years to map out this poem once he realized how ambitious it was going to be. But it took him all that time, maybe 10 years or eight years, five years, whatever it was, to become nonpartisan. So as you were talking about the factionalism in Florence, there were originally two rival parties. Italy didn't exist as a country. There were city-states, and so you have the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and each one is in power in a different time. And at some point, the Ghibellines were thrown out, and Dante was a Guelph. And while he was in Rome, as you said, he was a white Guelph, and the black Guelphs were in power. And the black Guelphs threw out the white Guelphs, and it has nothing to do with color. It's just they're probably connected to families. And... Mm that was that. And so there was all this infighting between these factions that originally were on the same side. So part of this is really um, a screed. And he wants everyone to know what Italy was like. He wants Italy to go back to being an empire. He wants the Roman Empire to be the grand empire it could be. He still has a vision of that this could work. And does the ambition of Dante's comedy does that translate to your own project? Is it going to be this like huge decade spanning transformative project for you? <laughs> it's totally transformative. I'm hoping it doesn't take me decades. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> too long. Um, but yes, it is. Um, it is incredibly ambitious. So I, I'm doing the exact same thing that Dante was doing and I'm using him as my model and I don't write the way Dante wrote in Italian. So what he started as a love poet, uh, influenced by the Provencal poets, and then he was part of a young group of poets that were writing love poetry, basically, and then he evolved. So he criticizes himself, too, in the book. He mocks the people who are writing just love poetry or simplistic stuff, but that included himself. So he was in this journey interrogating himself all the time. And in the same way, 
as a middle-aged person, just like Dante, uh, not feeling so great about things at some point, just like Dante, he was lost in the woods midway in his life's journey. He was 35 back then. That was middle, middle age. And he was lost in the wood. Maybe he was depressed. He hit someplace that he couldn't continue on his own. And this is important to me to understand because I am not doing this on my own. This book that I'm creating is being done in connection with a conversation. And this, my connection to Dante is a conversation, but the book is being done in connection to a conversation with two other artists that I met in Italy. And one is a cellist and one is a porcelain artist. And they're both older and more experienced than me. And they are not writers. So in the sense that I have an advantage, I'm looking at things in a different way and I'm writing poems out of them. And we've been influenced in different ways or not influenced in different ways. But what's key and central is the conversation around which our reading occurs. So once I left Italy, I thought, okay, now I'm going to start reading. I started reading the Purgatory Translation from the New York Review of Books, which is terrific. And then these two other women both said, hey, can we start and read very seriously? And, and I've read the Inferno a couple times, two or three times when I was in my 20s, different translations. I was not excited. I read it the way you read something quick and fast, the way most people probably read it. Oh, exciting. There's all this drama here. And then you put it down and you never move on. You never get to purgatory and you definitely don't get to paradiso. So I thought, you know, I really wanted to wait and I waited probably too long or maybe I didn't wait too long. But I think the idea of reading it repeatedly over time in a very deep way, slowly, when you understand what life's experience is or could be or hasn't been and how you need to move forward when you're really questioning something. And I think there was some relevance to the pandemic. You're in the pandemic and you have to start questioning life and you question your own life. You're getting older and life is suddenly much shorter than we anticipated. And each year life seems shorter and shorter than we anticipated because of what's going on in the world. With these two women, these two other artists, we decided we would read in the beginning, we would read five cantos a week. Let's just race through it. And we were just sort of lost. And we were also listening to two sets of lectures, sometimes three and one of us reads Italian, so that helped. And wow. we went along in a very, you know, in a very traditional way. We'd read the the Yale lectures by this um, professor Mazotta, who's an Dante expert, and then the Columbia lectures by Theodolinda Barolini, another Dante scholar. And it's very complex and academic, and of course, you can only get so much. And then we would talk, and then we would talk about other things, and we'd talk about our lives, and we started seeing things that mattered. And I changed utterly. I realized that there were ways that I wanted to be in life that Dante could teach me that he was going through too. I thought about forgiveness a lot, which is not something I ever really cared about or thought about. But I started thinking, what have I done, which is the theme of this book? What have you done that if you take love as the center of the book. This is a journey toward more love, more of the right kinds of love. Then I can ask myself, in what ways have I not loved enough? And do I not accept enough love? And not loving enough could be, I don't love um, something I should love enough. I don't pay enough attention to books. I don't pay enough attention um, and love my work enough. I don't love this person who loves me enough. And in terms of accepting enough love, why don't I accept enough love from this person who loves me dearly? Or why can't I accept love? And in the Purgatorio, the translation for the translator for that, who's a psychologist and a poet, says his idea was to think about, well, what 
trauma has kept us from loving enough. And so what Dante is taking from other people that he's writing around, like Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, Augustine, and really Virgil himself, what he he's what he's after is this story of love and in what ways we haven't we loved enough or don't we love the right things. And so you start off, God gives you a whole bunch of love. He gives you this. You're perfect. You have everything you need to be a successful person who loves things in the right way. And then at some point you move away from that. And so the question throughout this book for Dante is, in what ways have I moved away from it? How can I, what did I do? So I started asking myself the same thing. What have I done wrong? Instead of me thinking that I've done everything right. And so why hasn't this happened to me? Or why am I doing this or not doing this? Or what ways can I move ahead? I started thinking, in what ways can I love more? And in what ways does that change my life? And does that change the people in my life and the kind of conversations I have? So it becomes this really like life altering journey. And it very much is a spiritual existential journey that I'm on, just like Dante's on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many times have you read it in this cycle? This is only our second time. In fact, we're going slower and slower. We slowed to one canto a week after wow. a few months of five canto, frenetic five cantos a week, and we were just utterly lost because there's a lot. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Dante yeah. writes on many levels at the same times and at the same time. And now we're on one canto a week, but because of schedules, um, traveling, one of us is a musician, so she travels a lot. I've been in Italy. I've been doing things. And just because it's hard, we're now doing one canto every two to three weeks. And I think what we're going to start doing is doing two cantos at at a time. So we'll do cantos eight and nine, and the next time we'll do cantos nine and ten. Because what Dante does, which is complex and difficult and brilliant, is he doesn't just match up the circles of hell there are nine circles of hell. He doesn't put it like canto one, canto two, and it's right. neat. It's neat for the first few cantos. So canto circle one is canto four. This isn't matched up evenly because before that you have the dark wood and you have um, the people who are cowards who don't even get to go into hell. <laughs> right? So these are, there's a lot of people like that. People don't want to speak up. Then you have circle two, which is lust in canto five. And the same thing goes on until you get to um, circle five. And then you have different cantos crossing over between the circles and sometimes starting in the middle of a canto or at the end of a canto. And these are Mm -hmm. all narrative techniques, which are quite brilliant and confusing. And it's meant to be confusing. And so you're meant to read this poem over and over again. Yes. I did a lot. I think I read the entire comedy two or three times when I was in like high school and college. I had a similar experience to you where I thought a lot about my own sense of love and my own sense of existence from this, as well as just the existence of the world, because it is so specific and worldly in its way. And um, it does have this sort of hypnotic effect when you talk about how it doesn't line up the cantos with the rings, where it's like, it simultaneously starts to feel eternal, this like sense of judgment being stuck in this place and this incessant fall down where it's like, I can't tell time anymore because it's so um unburdened by the structure of the poem in that way think about it that's exactly what he's doing he's messing with duration he's thinking about time in the way aristotle thinks about time which i don't understand at all 
And <laughs> what you get at later is there is no time. And this gets even more confusing. So in Inferno, you're lost. You're really lost. And he wants you to be lost. You're constantly lost. He's constantly yeah. lost. He really is lost in the wood. And then he's physically, geographically lost. And part of that losses, you know, you also have to know all these other references. You have to know the Bible. You have to understand Exodus. You have to know, you have to know about Aeneas's journey that Virgil wrote about in the Aeneid. Um, and specifically chapter four, I mean, sorry, chapter six, where, you know, all these things are in parallel. So he's, he's constantly making you confused and happy and lost and, and think and interrogate. And then you have to go back over it. And there's a million names in it too. So you're lost unless you know all those names from mythology, from classical culture, and he's throwing them at you. And sometimes they're scary creatures. And then he's throwing a lot of Christian stuff at you too. Yeah. We're starting to get really deep in the book, but we want to get back. Um, it's hard not to. Before we get too much deeper, uh, we like we do like to talk about the cover art of the NYRB classic on every episode. So this cover art is a painting in the Scrovengi, I believe it is, the chapel. Chapel, yes, in Padua. Have you been there? Yes, I have. <laughs> How was it? I like to go. It's pretty damn spectacular, I have to say. And this cover is from the lower right. right part of it um and it just i noticed that it just cuts out the really gruesome parts there's a a demon or some giant lizard just up to the left that is munching on one guy's uh private parts and and eating another guy whole from Mm -hmm. from the feet so they chose a very smart (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I feel like the scene can be Beautiful. quite familiar to those that have read Inferno as a lot of what's going on here, I think, is brought about in the punishments in Inferno, sort of the demons devouring like and punishing the worst of mankind. You know, we even see like people with their heads sticking out of like the water in the bottom, which is one of the uh, later punishments. And we can also see the hand, a big hand holding someone by the leg in the center left. And in the Last Judgment, that is uh, the devil's hand, and the devil yes, is like eating yes. people like he is in the final cantos of yes. the of Inferno. Um, we did learn that the, the painter um, Giotto di Bonidone uh, also painted Dante's portrait as well. There are these contemporaries that are sort of enmeshed in the same artistic breath at this point. So didn't you, you thought this was a good... Yeah, I didn't realize he yeah. painted Dante's portrait, but but uh, I love Giotto, and and we think about him and talk about him all the time in our conversations with these artists because his yes, they were contemporaries. But this, I think, this cover art is spectacular. What's also interesting is that Dante doesn't get into the kind of gruesome medieval torture in the Inferno that painting mm. generally t- depicts. So there is this, especially in Malbage the last few ditches or whatever you want to call them, where the demons are kind of spiking people in the bloody water and, and poking their eyes out and doing things. And there's some gruesome stuff. But for the most part, especially in the beginning, he doesn't make he doesn't make it seem like people are suffering so much because they're just sort of there doing their their sin, continuing the sin unaware, uh, full of self-deception, and he lets them tell their stories. And so this is much more gruesome than generally what transpires throughout the commedia. Mm-hmm. And medieval painting is is pretty horrific. Some of it is very difficult to look at because you know people are just spiked all the way through the body and roasted on a pit. There's there's some horrible stuff, but 
uh, it is really remarkable to go to the Scrivini Chapel. They let you in for about 15 minutes after uh, sanitizing you in a room. <laughs> wow. Oh, really? a, a lecture, and then you sit there, and they're, they're pumping in probably a heap of filtered air, and then you're allowed to go and do a certain amount of stuff and, and then leave. And it really is it's spectacular. Incredible. That was awesome. Um, well, you talked about reading multiple different translations and having strong opinions about the translations of Dante that you've read. So I think it's a good time to now talk about this particular one, uh, which was published in the early 2000s. It was billed as a modern response to a classic of world literature in the vein of Seamus Haney's Beowulf. It's idiosyncratic. It is uh, Irish. Very Irish. In the introduction to the edition, uh, Kieran Carson explicitly connects the political context of his Belfast to that of, of Dante's Florence. Uh, so just in general, kind of what in overall, what is your opinion on this on this translation? And kind of why do you think it's important to have a modern translation of a book like this? I think it's important to have many translations of a book like this and half translations, partial translations, anything. I think it's important to continue because just like with any translation language changes over time, but there is something important to just this idea of all translations of Dante being important because more people are engaging with Dante and trying to figure out what is special. And the answer is always that, wow, this is really terrific and it's worth doing. So there's some consistency in, in having everybody understand how great the commedia is, uh, the divine comedy. And But it is also important because people get it wrong. There's no way to really get it right. There's a lot of problems. Italian is a language that has a lot of, a lot of words and in vowels. And in English, that is not the case. It's to translate using Dante's Terza Rima rhyme scheme, which is A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C. It's much harder to do that in English and in iambic pentameter. And so a lot of people have decided not to translate that way, but Kieran Carson decided to do that. And I thought his explanation was very good. So I was a little surprised because when I first looked at this, I thought sort of like a pony trot sometimes, and it seems completely wacko, and then I put it down, and then I picked it up again. <laughs> <laughs> Edwin will kill me. He said, oh, you know, I, I also thought it, it it wasn't the best at first, and then I looked again, and it was utterly necessary. No, I think it's a necessary translation, and I think once you look at it a second time, not I don't think it's the translation to read if you're just coming to Dante for the first time. And I think that maybe there is no such thing as a good translation for that, except maybe Alan Mandelbaum's translation, which is online, something very mm. straightforward, or the Princeton edition, which is not fun to read, at least as <laughs> <laughs> it's a prose translation, but you get good notes. And at the end, it has the Italian on facing pages and you really get as literal a meaning as as you can by Charles Singleton. So I like the Mandelbaum translation, which I didn't love at first. I'd been reading C.H. Sisson, who was a poet and an editor at PN Review. And, and I think it's a pretty good translation, but nothing, as I go through it again and look at the Italian more closely, nothing compares to the Italian. And you can never get it quite right. Sure. You're looking at everything at the same time and really looking at the, the words and then following lectures and commentaries. It's very complex. 
I thought what Karen Carson did was kind of terrific. So I've now read through the whole thing. I've leafed through it a bunch of times and I've now read it straight through. And what he's trying to do with Irish and thinking about Belfast too, less so, I mean, Belfast Belfast doesn't really show up in the book in the same way that the Irish language does. And this is hugely important. So what he, what the main connection between Dante and the Irish languages is music. So Dante was writing poems to love poems that his friend or friends set to music. And it's possible these were meant to be sung. It's not really clear, but Karen Carson compares this to Irish balladeers of the 18th and 19th century. And he's written a whole book about Irish music too. And there's a kind of energy here that I think is useful and that connects to Karen Carson's work and his skill as a poet. So sometimes you do can get kind of a, a drop sort of pony trot that comes in with some nutty rhymes and rhymes are always going to be a little nutty if you're rhyming in this crazy mindless over 14,000 lines. I think it is if you're endlessly rhyming like this and you're really limited by these rhymes. And so there was one rhyme that really offended me. It was God and Rod. And I thought this, (laughs) and I really don't like that rhyme. And then there are other, Oh, here, here it is. Actually there's, um, and then there's also um, Bog, Dogs, which is actually good, and Claude. And then you have the God. There's God and Rod several times. So it does get a little clip-cloppy and childlike and nursery rhymish. But then he's also able to go forward with a complexity and density as a poet that you recognize as a poet, and you forget about the rhymes. And so it becomes a joy to read. And for the most part, he's translating pretty straightforwardly. And when he can stick Irish stuff in there, he does. His diction is fantastic. And this is wonderful because Dante's diction was very precise. And as you were talking about before, as I try to figure out what to do with my poems connected to Dante, my lines tend to be bigger, more Whitman-esque. I'm interested in music. But Dante was so precise, he would not give an inch. There was a moment where he might have digressed for a fun metaphor or a phrase, he would not. He doesn't do that. He is incredibly precise. Everything he's doing is decisive and he's ironic all the time and he's questioning you, the reader, as he's questioning himself. So I'm trying to do that with my own work and I've become more precise, which means the poems are harder and harder to do. And I sit there grinding away thinking, what is the only exact thing that can be right here? And how can I avoid cheating? So there's a certain rigor that he has in the book that we can all learn from. And and this translation, I'm going to read you a couple fun lines. Um, Please. So, and he makes up stuff like there's instead of, a, a, he calls a center horsey man. So, you know, there is, <laughs> it's rollicking at its best and slapstick, limericky, but um, you can just listen to the diction. As in the art, now this is Canto 21. As in the arsenal of the Venetians, they boil cauldrons full of pitch as thick as shit for caulking ships of every nation, leaking hulls in dry dock, others slick with new paint, their planks patched and plugged with tow, the climate odiferous and toxic, Workmen hammering at stern and bow or splicing ropes, fixing oars, cutting wire, boys with buckets dashing to and fro. These are lines Dante would have never written right there. 
yeah. <laughs> very Irish uh, lines. I mean, they feel rustic and rural and they're exciting. So I mean, he really, he does know what he's doing and it comes out all the time in between mm-hmm. other funny stuff. Or here's, a, you know, here's what, you did. I mean, Canto 32 and he says, oh, bugger off. Or I'll scalp your noggin piece by piece. So it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a translation that embraces its own limitations rather than trying to evade them. Um, and I kind of think of, explaining it. Yeah, I kind of think about that in in its inclusion as an NYRB classic, which is sort of known for publishing like a new translation of a book you haven't maybe heard of or read before. Obviously, we've probably all heard of the Divine Comedy. Yeah. But what do you think about it as an NYRB classic specifically? Do you think it kind of merits being included? I think they publish things that are important for readers, for serious readers, to show them Mm -hmm. how to read more seriously and what they're missing. So this is an example of that. Why publish this peculiar translation that is not straightforward enough to merit billing it as a standard story here you're going to read the inferno and you're going to get everything but no it's it's part of a a movement of publishing literature that that has a, a different kind of arc a different strategy and that that adds to the scholarship that's already out there that adds to the literature that's out there this guy's a poet he's an important poet and he's doing it in dialect and Dante was doing his own work in dialect and he created the Italian language. It didn't exist to the same extent. So he shifted writing from Latin, like his earlier works, to writing in vernacular Italian Tuscan dialect, specifically Florentine dialect. And he changed the Italian language. He developed the language and the entire poem is about language along with many other themes. So the fact that this guy is writing an Irish language version of this epic poem that connects to factionalism and violence in Belfast is hugely important. And that alone would be enough. Plus he's a really good poet and you see the dynamic as you go. And in fact, in toward the end, I think chapter, I'm sorry, Canto 18, which is really gruesome is probably his best Canto. It's thrilling, Mm -hmm. very violent and it's exciting. Do you want me to read you another to oh please. please yeah because there are two in particular and again somehow I, I I must be drawn to the word shit but um because <laughs> that's in here too but you know it's everywhere this is the inferno no barrel with its staves all ripped apart gaped wider than this sinner I saw slit from chin through belly to the farting part his guts were dangling having burst their pit. I saw his lungs, his liver, and the sack that turns whatever swallowed into shit. Yeah. Hey, unpleasant down in the inferno, isn't it? So Dante's <laughs> fainting all the time. He yeah. A bunch of times. When we talk about this factionalism, that factionalism definitely speaks to what Belfast is going through at this time. And when you were talking about how Paradiso was in the NYRB classics translated by like a psychologist and and how they bring their own idea to like love. Like it seems very important that Inferno, the most conflicted and um, broken, it would bring so much to it by being written by someone that is going through it. So first-handed. 
for you, Katya, this was your first yeah. reading of the Divine Comedy of Inferno. Yeah. So y- you mentioned this might not be the best um, yeah. first. Well, I'm curious then what you thought of it. So how do you know? That's what I want to hear. It was um, it was overwhelming at first, but I think that in a way this can be a good introduction because it's lighthearted and fun. There's a spirited feeling to it. It doesn't feel like you're um, doing English homework, which <laughs> other translations might. And if you really want to be serious about it, you can. But I, you know, I think there's like room to not always be serious about reading Dante. And you can still get the intensity of his vision and of all that kind of self-reflection and things that you talked about experiencing by, by you know, letting it kind of sneak in the back door and letting it just sort of come upon you without like intentionally doing it that way. Um, but no, I just, I want to read, because just reading it alone without continuing on to Purgatory and then Paradise, it's like, I don't, I'm only looking at the, the corner of the painting of the chapel. I don't see the whole <laughs> chapel yet. So I'm like, okay, I got to figure out where to go now. I know. I do think it's kind of sad to only read one yeah especially in like school like you were saying people kind of read inferno and then they move on which is very sad because i think for for me um purgatorio is probably my favorite because we get to see sort of an arc of the people that are in that realm because in that realm you can change unlike the other two where you're sort of stagnant in your judgment yes and sort of how much in paradise sort of uh reflects back on what you see in hell and brings an interesting mirror side to it, especially with the representation of devil and the God and, and God himself is probably my favorite thing. And so, yeah, I think it is, I almost wish that NYRB would have published all three together. Um, all three by different people. Um, because I've convinced you know, them, for them to decide. I don't know about that. <laughs> like the Purgatorio translator to work on Paradiso. So they, oh, really? they, this is a secret. That's now no longer a secret that out and you know i also love purgatory it's been my favorite and then um paradiso is so full of christianity and chariots on fire and circles and angels yes there's a lot of christianity but it's also um the idea of time if you're a poet if you're a literary person this playing with the idea of time uh not really existing in the way you want the idea of everything being in God's mind. It's just kind of, it makes you feel crazy and you're utterly lost all over again and you're supposed to be lost. And then things build on everything else you've read. So if you've read through the Inferno, you recognize people in Paradiso, either from the family or you recognize the same themes. The same themes exist in every single canto all the way through and they're mirrored so if you look at canto nine of the inferno and purgatorio and paradiso there will be a connection he was really meticulous there's a connection between all three there are cantos about economics or cantos about uh people singing there there's there's a lot of directional movement you're always going left down into hell and contrary to what most people think as you know it is cold at the bottom of hell. And in fact, there's no motion. There's no movement at all. So you're, there's, people are immobile. Lucifer is immobile with a couple of people dangling out of his mouth. And 
it is only through your motion back upwards when he realizes he can flip his way back out and go up to purgatorio. And it is through the motion through purgatory and moving up through purgatory and to be more urgent about it and then through paradiso that you then get to a higher spiritual place and you move forward. So motion is always here. So ideally people, yes, would move through the inferno and go to the next the next ones, but it's also fine to just read the inferno. I don't think I could have gotten, I didn't get beyond it when I was younger because I didn't have mm. the experience. I didn't have the patience. It's very confusing. It's hard to read. And I've just, for you guys, special treat, I mapped out all the different, le different levels on which Dante is working in Canto 9. So when I said earlier that oh, I don't yeah. think there's anyone else as great as Dante in terms of the kind of journey and undertaking that he's doing as a poet. There's a couple reasons that I say that. One is because he's working on so many levels at the same time, and I don't think anyone can keep up. I don't think one can compare. Now, Milton is close because he was brilliant and he read everything and, uh, it's sort of like Beethoven. When you see genius, you kind of recognize it. So one is that he's working on multiple levels and he's doing something dramatically radical with what he's trying to create. He's trying to get to a place where after being exiled, after being completely devastated, he cannot go home. He's living off handouts from others and he has to release himself from his partisanship in order to be the kind of poet that he hopes to be, which is a great poet. He decides he wants to be the greatest poet on earth and he does it. So it's sort of shocking. <laughs> he really does do it. And so on multiple levels, here's Canto 9, which is about Virgil's fall fallibility. So one important part of the book is just their friendship. So, yeah. so this is, you know, that's really critical to the book, but and some of these aren't exactly multiple levels, but I tried to map it out as clearly as I could. So I got about 12 levels. So one ideology. So he's trying to tell us a classical culture is not enough. So here's Christian culture. Let's look at Christian culture. There's an emotional level. So Virgil is fallible. He makes a mistake. He doesn't, he makes several mistakes, but in Canto 9, he's actually not able to get into the city of Dis, which is just a place full of demons and he doesn't have the key. And then and the angel comes down and is just sort of irritated to be there at all. And he just like touches the door and it opens and he leaves. He's just couldn't be bothered to be there. And so Dante realizes that Virgil's saying, no, 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 I know the way. I know the way. Don't worry. And he says, oh, my God, you know, this is uh, this is not what I expected. So there's an emotional uh, problem there. And then there's an intellectual level where he's always working. And, and this is another example of Virgil, who supposedly knows everything. He's a wise guy. He's the guy who is brilliant. He's the greatest poet on earth up till now, but his intellect was not good enough. Then there's just a plot. There's two guys walking. This is a plot. This is a plot of the entire poem, two guys walking. That's it. There's walking, mm -hmm. walking which itself is brilliant. And uh, then there's something about conquest in here. You know, will the demons win uh, in Christianity or will classical culture win? Who will, who will, you know, there's, there's, he's setting something up. So you see, he's setting something up for the entire poem. Then there's persuasive techniques. This may not be a level, so-called level, but uh, he's 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 saying, look at all these scary monsters. They're the Furies and Medusa. Don't look at Medusa because you will die. And then there's storytelling. And what's interesting about this connected to Virgil is the weaker that Virgil gets, the more Dante loves him. And, and yeah. Karen Carson is very good at conveying this. And so you see the kind of friendship that develops. You see people getting older. You see people 
week, you see, as you know, and as a writer, I help other writers and they help me. And the same with this conversation with these with these two artists. They help me with things that I would never be able to do myself. And other writers help me with stuff that I would never be able to figure out on my own and vice versa. So, so we all have to help each other. And we all then start recognizing each other's flaws and weaknesses. And that is part of love. That is part of writing. That is part of recognizing how good you can be at something, how much better at something you might be than someone else and they than you at something else. But that is part of also ambition. So Dante had the ambition to be the greatest poet. He was going to surpass Virgil and he did. So I have also a theological level. So the angel is there and there's a whole bunch of theology in there that we don't need to get into. And then psychologically, that's another level because this is about cowardice and fear. Virgil is scared. Dante's terrified because Virgil is terrified. Then there's this whole social interaction. That's another level. There's this interaction between the two poets. Um, one is embarrassed. Virgil is embarrassed that he can't get them into the city. Dante is trying to deal with that embarrassment and trying to not make him feel worse. And then there's language. And so this whole book is also about language. How good a poet am I? <laughs> I am the Italian language. And he's constantly referring to language and there's all these questions and the questions sometimes have questions embedded in them. And then he's referring to other things with the language and, and everything should be noticed. You can't possibly notice everything, but he wants you to notice everything and ask questions. That was amazing. That was amazing. Like <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I think you're right. It is best to read this book with others and share it because I've learned a lot about this book that I've read multiple times and have not picked up on from just talking with you about the whole thing in generalizing it at a certain point. And it's quite an incredible experience. We have about free will, right? So free will is the major theme also. So there's a million major themes, but free will still continues to be a major theme. And you have to cope with the fact that God knows everything and yet we have free will anyway and this connects very very closely to to milton and then here in the commedia you see the tension of the two smashing together and and how do you then go about making your love decisions how do you love more how do you accept this and how do you do it genuinely and of course there's two specific places in the commedia where god sees what you're doing they see how genuine you are when you actually apologize and uh, after you've slaughtered a thousand people you think mary and God believes you when you get to go to purgatory or some other situation when you Franciscan monk or a guy who's pretending to be a Franciscan monk and he does something very bad. And in fact, the devils come to get him. The fight is won by the devil. So you have to be genuine in that. And there's a, it's, that's another theme throughout. Given that sort of perspective on it, this work does have these, all these long forgotten political dramas of people that did commit mass murder or, run the politics of the time. And it's hard to parse this text without referring to scholarly notes, because especially a lot of these people are mentioned either in passing or in reference to something they did rather than what their name actually is. And maybe in the 14th century in Italy, you would be able to easily recognize that, but no longer is that something that is easy to notice as a modern reader. Um, so how does this poem still manage to connect with modern readers despite this sort of limitation that is inherently there? I think some people like you, like me, like I like a lot of people who are just curious, will do some of the other reading. First of all, the people who were reading this poem at the time were well-versed 
in the Old and New Testament. And if you're already well-versed in the Old and New Testament for whatever reason, you will do pretty well with Dante. Yeah. And if you've read any mythology or if you've read some Homer, uh, you will also do well. He didn't actually read Homer, but I think he read Homer translated. And if you're, you know, one of those guys who read, sit at home and read Aristotle, you'll do well <laughs> with Dante as well. But I also think that just like all good books, all books that survive through translations, no matter how bad those translations are, and I'm not saying this one is bad, I'm just saying a good book survives its translations, then you can just, um, you can do what Cassie did and you can just read it. And that's that's true. I do. And then you remember, and at some point you think, oh, well, now I want to read this other part, or maybe there's some, somebody mentioned something and you listen and someone you care about. So therefore you start caring about it. So these other two women that I'm reading the Commedia with might not have cared about this, but they saw me really revved up while I was walking up and down these hills in Italy, listening to these lectures, very excited. And they said, well, can I read it with you? And they were, they were excited to read it with me. And they didn't know each other all that well. And so over time, and this connects to the theme of friendship, which is part of the conversation, uh, yeah. we read it because we want to be friends and we want to be better friends and we want to uh, influence one another and we want to become better artists ourselves. And these are two artists, these two women um, who are actually, in my opinion, at the top of their fields. So <laughs> that it, it doesn't matter. You still have to continue. And so my ambition is to write work that is really, really terrific and that isn't like Dante, but is that uses my, in my third book, that uses my natural talents in a way that I can best approach them and improve them and polish them and be the kind of poet that Dante became who was good enough to write the book. So I want to be the kind of poet who was good enough to write my third book. And mm -hmm. I want to be a better poet. So I don't want to have stasis. I want to go through the motion, just like Aristotle says you're supposed to do in the Nicomachean Ethics, which this is based on, just like Dante is moving us through the afterlife. I also want to go forward. And, and for that reason, I think... I think people will come to it. Maybe people will listen and to this and, and they'll respond to one particular translation. Maybe it'll be this one. Maybe it'll be purgatory. That's so beautiful. I know. That's kind of why we started our podcast. <laughs> yeah, was... that's what this show is to us as well. Well, see, if you guys can come to it, I mean, there's a million other things you could have been doing. You might have just been reading regular books or literary books. You might have not been literary people at all, but Obviously you are, but you decided to to choose books that are not always the easiest to read, that are outside the mainstream, mm -hmm. curated by one person or several people who have varied interests and are not interested, are, are, are not compelled to publish something just because it's trendy. Yes, everybody wants to sell books, but there's a value in finding something and adding something new to it and bringing it out to the public and explaining why, why it matters. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious what you think Dante's view on punishment is in the Inferno, because like there's this one memorable part where one of the inhabitants of some circle of hell has like frozen droplets of tears <laughs> in his eyes. And he asked Dante to wipe them away and, 
he won't do it. He says something like, it's mean enough for me to not do it. And when I read that part, I was just like, why don't just do it? You know, like, this is so sad. You know, I have a different response, but... (laughs) That I, I remember that episode, and I feel that Virgil louds him. He he probably compliments him for not wiping the guy's tears. Um, Virgil is always saying, "Why are you why why are you paying attention to them? Why do you feel sad for them? They're here for their sins." So I don't know. I think that comes either. I think that might be before the people who have their bodies twisted on. They're crying into their butt cracks. Um, <laughs> that's a different episode. But I think there's this person. Who has, and I, and I don't remember, it can't be the popes because the popes are upside down in the ground. Yes. He's cruelest to them. He hates the popes more than anyone else because it was Pope Boniface the Eighth who was a reason why he was exiled in the first place, yeah. um, who allied with the Black Wealths. And I think that he, Dante can be pretty harsh. I think in some cases, and this is true later in Purgatorio, he is harsher than Aristotle in how he treats women. He is kinder to Jews than you would expect. He is harsher to homosexuals, um, his teacher, than you would expect. And that there's some problematic sections, but he is cruel. He does not want to feel bad. In the beginning, in Canto V, he faints for the first time when he hears the famous Francesca story, this woman who fell in love with her husband's brother. And she doesn't say when she's telling him the story, oh, yes, and by the way, I was married when I had an affair with him. So you think, as you're reading, she's she's harming her. She doesn't know she's harming herself, but we hear more of the story. And later, if you read around it, he doesn't tell us, but what happened is she was tricked into marrying this guy who was, I guess, ugly and she really wanted his brother. And then they tricked her at the altar and she was stuck with this guy who she didn't like Mm -hmm. and wasn't in love with. And so there's a reason, but he doesn't let her go, but he also doesn't destroy her. He makes her eternal, just like the moth for Virginia Woolf, because she doesn't really exist in literature except in Dante. So he cared Mm -hmm. enough about her and he cried at her story but then with these tears, he gets increasingly harsh. And this is part of his journey to understand how to be harsher and not to care as much. And this is also a metaphor for death, which is something that you have to open your arms to. So increasingly, as he moves forward in the afterlife, he is told by Virgil, don't look back. Stop looking back. You have to look forward. You have to let go of the things you loved, the people you loved. This happens in the beginning of Purgatorio with his friend who shows up. He's having a grand old time. And uh, Cato and Virgil say, come on, come on, let's go. And he doesn't want to go, but he he has to learn to let go and to forget everyone. He will also forget Virgil later, Mm -hmm. which is really heartbreaking. I mean, the Virgil scene is heartbreaking, but it's about trying to understand what happens as you get older and what happens when you die. And you do have to let all those people who you love and who love you go. Mm-hmm. But yes, he is very harsh, and he he has um, a harsh template. I, I have to say, regarding his harshness, I also believe that he forgives everyone. Mm-hmm. As harsh as he is, I believe that there's some indication, I think we just found it a few cantos ago, that is the first hint that in fact he saves everyone. 
that he saves everyone in the inferno, that all this is a story, yes, but he doesn't just save the people who made it to Purgatorio and then have to do their penance for 500 years or and get to Paradiso. I think he has to save everyone. I think because if he doesn't save everyone, he cannot save his friend Virgil. He cannot save all these poor babies who have not been baptized. He cannot save the people who grew up by the Ganges, which he mentions. He cannot save the people who are pagans who have nothing to do with with mm-hmm. Christ because they didn't know him. And that is in that is unjust. And so if Dante is a man, he is. If he is promoting this particular philosophy, I believe that he must be saving everyone. But I think you get a sense of it as as you go through the book, because he's constantly, he refers to the people from the Ganges many times. He refers to the people who are stuck in limbo. He refers to all these brilliant poets and thinkers who could not get into paradise. God does save a few people. He does go back and get a whole bunch of people, matriarchs and patriarchs from the Old Testament. So somehow they get into paradise and he uses to save a few other people, but not Virgil. Yeah. Yeah. Virgil's stuck. As we've talked about, there is a lot of startling imagery in this poem. And I think that has quite influenced how collectively we have viewed the afterlife for centuries after from literature to just general pop culture. Are there any images that stand out most to you? And um, has this sort of view changed on subsequent readings? I think I like Francesca more and more. And we're constantly Mm. referring in my group conversation we're constantly looking at Blake's illustrations and also Blake's illustrations and also Botticelli just mostly line drawings are really beautiful especially in paradise but the things that stand out to me are Francesca because it's not so violent she's in a world and there's so many different ways of depicting her and Paolo in a world in this kind of storm where they're either together in paintings and moving or they're unable to reach each other and they're endlessly trying to get at one another. So I like those depictions. And I also like Gerion or as it could be Geriani. It's not clear. Different people pronounce it different ways, which is just Mm -hmm. a scary, horrible monster that brings Dante down. And I think Karen Carson mentions this particular episode when he thinks of an aerial view of Belfast and dropping down into what Belfast was like. And Florence was even more compact than Belfast, but you see the darkest pits of hell, Malbouge, the place where there are all these ditches and the demons are just forking people. Mm-hmm. So Gerion, the monster, seems terrifying, but Dante has to get on his back and Virgil is, he's terrified and Virgil holds him and he's just sort of free in the air dropping and it's a and and on the way back up he's also terrified but there is this imagery of this monster there's a lot of imagery and a lot of illustrations of this monster that are terrific and uh there's also this image that i've created in my mind of virgil holding on to dante because there's a number of places in the inferno in the inferno where virgil holds on to dante and he's always described like a child like a like a mother holding her daughter when the house is on fire and they leap away. And so he says, don't worry, I'll protect you. And he puts his arm around terrified Dante. And that's such a beautiful moment. So I like it for that. And then I like Ugolino, who's just eating the neck of (laughs) his enemy who who starved him and his two sons to death. It's a terrific, wild image that's shocking and upsetting and 
horrible and big. You imagine these yeah. jaws and this big guy, and they're endlessly munching on. He's endlessly munching on the neck. And the question is like, would you want to be the person eating the other guy, or would you want to be the person who's being cannibalized? And so that <laughs> both both seem bad. <laughs> um, the one that always kind of stood out the most for me in Inferno was the um, the ring on the suicides. Yeah. Yes. Where people are turned into trees, and when you break them, blood comes out, and like they're—that's when they're awoken to tell you their story. I was watching while cooking last night. I threw on *Wizard of Oz*, and that itself is sort of a Dante-esque story of being on a journey. You have these companions; they take you. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there is a part in that one where she like rips an apple off a tree, and that causes the app the the trees to sort of revolt against her. And I was like, oh, that imagery kind of feels prevalent oh fascinating there's, there's so much in like arachne i think it's turned into a tree there's so many classical women who get turned into a tree and yeah chasing them a god is trying to rape them rapes them and then chasing them and then to get saved they get turned into a tree so the tree is there in classical mythology as well right was there anything that stood out to you on your reading first reading Cassia? you know it was right at the beginning the people who are just pacing the side of the river because mm-hmm. they're not hot or cold enough to deserve to be anywhere. Yeah. That was intense. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I think we also have to mention the devil. The devil is... Well, yeah, yeah, he's there. It's amazing when he's going through the very, very literal bottom of hell and there's all these people stuck in the ice and then he sort of like turns a corner and there is the devil himself stuck in the ice as well. Mm-hmm. Munching on the heads of like the three quote unquote worst sinners. Yeah, um, that's fascinating, right? You expect something different. And it's all just mm-hmm. and icy and it feels like a big shaggy beast. Yeah. Except mm-hmm. Cassius and Brutus, who betrayed Caesar, and Judas, who betrayed Christ. Mm-hmm. And you have the classical and Christian. You know, since you mentioned the, the trees, there's this line, line 34 in Canto 9. Canto 8, which is where the, the suicide trees are. And the tercet is, I stretched out my hand somewhat uncertainly and plucked a twiglet from a mighty thorn. The trunk cried, why do you dismember me? Blood bubbled out of it. Why have you torn me? The trunk began to weep again. Really beautiful. There is something that Dante says somewhere else, and I don't remember exactly what where the canto is, where the tercet is. But he says, and this is important, that if you take your own life, it's beautifully said, and not the way I'm saying right now, it's beautifully said by someone somewhere else, that God gave you this life and for you to not accept or appreciate the sun, the light, um, essentially is criminal. That's not the way it's said, but it's a a reminder to, to all of us to value your life, to think that life is short. God gave you this, whether you believe in God or not, you were given this. And so if you are not accepting the light outside, if you do not value the light and the air, then you are the one doing harm to yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it's interesting the levels he decides to choose for punishments where, you know, people that committed genocide are probably on lower level or on better levels than those who committed astrology 
or bribery or something. Yeah, we, we, my friends and I talk about how could we uh, rejigger these a little, but it's sort of fascinating because the, the simplest of all things, the thing that's most prevalent, uh, someone has an affair, that's way at the top. He didn't really care about that so much. And it's just, mm. and then the people who are just greedy, gluttony, doesn't care about that so much. Avarice and prodigality gets a little worse. And prodigality is when it moves away from Christian sin. So he starts off with the Christian sins and then switches it, switches it. And then wrath and sullenness and sullenness connects to not caring about your life enough. Mm. And then you get heresy. So the more ecclesiastical the sin, the more yeah. Yeah. it wants you at the bottom of hell. And the violence and fraud often connect to ecclesiastical privileges, uh, heretics that have done something against a church, the people who are in the church and have sold favors or have harmed culture and society in some way because of their greed. And at the mm -hmm. very bottom, the treachery against kin is the worst. So the reason Ugolino really speaks to me is there's this really beautiful, sad story where he's Put in a dungeon with his kids and then he hears him nailing up the place the the board where they usually give him his food and he realizes that they mean to starve him and so he knows he's going to die and the kids see his face and they say what is it what is it and he can't respond he goes cold so he cannot and so he's not put at the bottom of hell for whatever his original sin was which was to fight against this other guy ruggieri it was not their argument that put him here, but what put him here is the way he treated his children by being unavailable to them when they needed him most. And then basically being cold and silent for a few days. And then they say, hey, dad, how about you eat our bodies? And he doesn't really respond. And then they die. And then there's a question of whether he eats their bodies or not. But the sin is not being available. The sin is yeah. letting down, this is the treachery, the greatest treachery, letting down those who depend on you, which is a story mm -hmm. of friendship and caring. So his view like of what it means to be a good person is so much more than not doing bad things, <laughs> right? Like you, you really have to think about what's needed of you and like the role you play in society and in your relationships and like provide for people on all sorts of different levels. So even though there's all this like really body imagery and there's, there's a wildness to it, it's super poignant. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to when we talk about how these books are explicitly and almost singularly, even in all of its wild strings and webs, it's always about love. And so you can almost argue people that commit violence, they at least have love enough for something to commit the violence, you know, mm -hmm. for, a land for power for God. And in this way, the people that are at the bottom that are treacherous, they're treacherous for no love. There's, there's, there's an empty. You're so brilliant. You're utterly brilliant. That's true. There's, there's emotion and love, right? You care enough. Seriously. Think about the people who had no opinions, who were not even allowed to get into hell because they could not for fear of being harmed. Just like today, people don't want to express an opinion on anything. If you are the person who cannot express an opinion or are too scared for what might happen to you, that is the worst. Yeah. That is the absolute worst. So if you're, you're able to feel, you're able to do violence, at least you're doing something. You might change. You might recognize, I do things wrong. You do things wrong. So at some point, you might recognize, oh, 
we care about that too much. We are too greedy. I want mm -hmm. this. I want this amount of money. I want this amount of recognition. And at some point you might think, okay, that doesn't matter. That shouldn't matter. And you're able to move back. And so the right things eventually come to you. Maybe the right thing is caring about what you're doing and caring about your friends versus caring about fame or greed or money and caring about how many houses you have. But the worst is being at the lower parts of hell where there is no feeling, there's no ability to change, like you said. Well, the Inferno ends with Virgil and Dante exiting hell via the devil's genitalia and emerging to a sky full of stars. Um, what do you think Dante takes from hell that helps him along the journey? You know, he's still so young in this uh, three-day episode of his, of his afterlife journey. I think he has started to recognize that it is necessary to be slightly cruel to the sinners and that the sinners deserve their sins. I think there's some awareness of his confusion. I think there's a lack of expectation that he himself recognizes and this continuity of surprise when he gets to Purgatorio. It's because he's flipped around and then they start turning right and then they are on the shore with the stars and he recognizes his body and people recognize his body in a more alert way. But I think, let me think about this some more. It's a really hard question because there's so many things he learns and there's so many things he doesn't learn. But what mm -hmm. he's constantly learning, this is the one thing that I can say for sure, what he's constantly learning is that man is not the measure of anything, man, women, whatever. Uh, because the second he gets to purgatory, he tries to measure his next steps by the human body. This is how long it's going to take. He's still doing these things wrong. He hasn't figured out what he's supposed to do yet. He hasn't figured out anything, really. I mean, he's he's kind of clueless all the way through. So let me think about this again. What has he learned that's going to help him in purgatory? I think I have the answer. I think that he has learned to trust Virgil. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah, I'm not sure there's anything I can say securely except that he's learned that um, that he loves Virgil too, and as Virgil grows weaker and less powerful, and he becomes more powerful and tries more things, like he he writes an acrostic at some point, trying to imitate God's art. He writes it in Italian, really nervy, but he's trying to say, I'm as good as God, and uh, this is on the terrace of avarice, I think. And he's mm. saying, yes, I'm avaricious, but it's a small price to pay, and you, reader, can judge me. So at that point, he's able to move forward, but that's the price of ambition, and that's the price it takes to write a good poem. But the only thing that's consistent, and this is why the the connection between Inferno and Purgatorio is so strong and moving is the only thing that's consistent is his relationship with Virgil and how it gets shaped, how it deepens as they walk. And you can't forget the walking. So two men walking. When you walk with someone, you get closer to them. You're just talking. You, you share things. And they're not having constantly complex, deep philosophical conversations. Sometimes they do. Sometimes Virgil scolds him. But mostly they're saying, oh, look over here. Hey, do you think those demons are doing anything? Or where well, should we go over here? Yeah. We're going to be over here. They're just having small talk and they're just walking. They care about each other over time because of their proximity and the journey they're on together. And there's much more that you learn about Virgil and why he was sent there and what he's what has happened. And but but he trusts him. 
did you guys figure out? Is there another, is there something I've missed? Gosh, I don't know how to find anything that you've missed. No, yeah. <laughs> that would be a hard task. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, about Inferno or about Dante that we didn't get to? You know, one thing that we haven't talked about, I'm not sure if we've talked about, is deception and self-deception, because this is another theme all the way through the Inferno. Mm. And it doesn't really ever stop because everybody, and this is this connected to the narrative structure, because which is brilliant because he has dialogue, he has apostrophe talking to the reader. He has people telling their stories in their own voice. And he brilliantly chooses never to tell us their stories. They tell their own stories. So they, mm-hmm. are, they are confessing essentially without realizing they're confessing and they're deceiving themselves. And this is his way of saying, we're all deceiving ourselves as we talk, as we have dialogue. And this is, the function of language and language is back to this theme of language and how we represent ourselves and what we miss. And we can never represent ourselves well enough. We can never see ourselves well enough, which actually brings me to something this choreographer said the other day as I'm starting a collaboration of some kind with the ballet. And the choreographer said, you know, people come and say, oh, I've been to the ballet. I saw the ballet. And he said, they didn't see the ballet. They saw part of the ballet. They just saw one part of the ballet. Maybe Mm -hmm. the second day you'll see a different part of the ballet, but you make choices when one dancer goes over here and one does something else. They choose to see this and not that. And it's because of your neuropsychological makeup that you choose things in a particular way. And in the same way in the Inferno, because of people's own neuropsychological makeup, they will choose to see that I was just here for love. I loved this guy and I don't know why I'm here. I'm just swirling around. I please tell everyone my story. Tell people to pray for me. That's actually not what Francesca says. I'm making this up, but but other people (laughs) um, along the way, but they don't see what they've done. Ugolino, um, whether he's cannibalizing his children or not, he doesn't see his fault. He's just sort of frozen and unpsychological and it's pretty early to be psychological and he's deceiving himself he's deceiving his children who depended on him all along you get this self-deception that am I going to be good enough this is another part of writing am I going to be a good enough writer am I going to be able to get through this and then there's these impediments or worries or dangers for example if Dante looks at Medusa and Virgil doesn't trust him so he covers his eyes Medusa he will die if he falls off Gerion the monster Geriani he will die if those demons in Malboge get them because Virgil didn't notice that they were about to get them and Dante did if Virgil hadn't grabbed him and moved so fast and flung himself off into a ravine then Dante would have died. So there's this, this fear constantly. And there are different ways that we think we're wise. So for that particular episode, the self-deception is we assume Virgil is all-knowing and great and wise, and here he isn't. Here he's fallible. We think Dante is not very smart yet, uh, but he's smarter than he thinks, and he recognizes things. He has different talents and different senses of people than Virgil does. And so we're deceiving ourselves in our own talents. So have I deceived myself all along to think that I could not write a poem as good as the poem Dante wrote? Yes. I mean, it's ballsy and nervy and ambitious, but it's not incorrect. So what is the best possible work I could do? Dante had a best possible work, and this is it. 
I'm not in talk today, obviously, but I also have a best possible work as do you, as we all do in life. And so how do we get there? And you can get there through lots of, I'm deceiving myself saying I'm not good enough. Just like many people say, well, I'm not good enough. Or, uh, if only this, but I think everybody is good enough. It's just about how do you figure out how to get there? And I think it's through other people and through conversations. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, I know. And we have, we have read so many, you know, great books on this show, but no other book that we've read has allowed us to have a conversation about these kinds of topics. And it's kind of like, well, what else is there to talk about? These are the most important things. Like, yeah. It's probably been the most emotional I? discussion. Yeah, who had. am I? What am I going to do in my life? Yeah. yeah. You guys sell a lot of books. Maybe I'll get a lifetime subscription. I love it. I love talking about this. I love preparing. I love thinking about it. I learned so much. And you guys are, you're thinking so hard. It's, it's lovely. It's lovely to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. And we're so eager to read the your Dante poems whenever they're ready. That's going to be an exciting day. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see how well I This is not a tiny extravaganza. This is a huge extravaganza. Um, this is the first book that I have previously read that we have done on the show. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. This is my first ever reread. And I was so ignorant in comparison to both of you because this is my first experience with reading Dante. I don't know if I'd say ignorant is the right way to put in it. In comparison, I don't think I'm ignorant. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, my only experience with Dante's Inferno is going to the Palacio Barolo in uh, Buenos Aires, uh-huh. which is a building, I think, funded by like a rich Italian immigrant inspired by the poem. So you enter in hell and okay. there's like reddish marble and demons and inscriptions and gold painted on the walls and then the office building floors are all purgatory it's like very white and blank and then at the top there's this like glass cupola Mm. cupola however you say it which is paradise and it has an incredible view of the whole city from up there you can go and sit in it yeah is that the best building you've ever been in probably yeah by a long shot that's so cool I want to go and visit after I actually read the book and then I can experience it. You should more. go to the bottom and read all of Inferno, <laughs> then go into the office buildings and then read Purgatory. The, the bottom floor is open to the public. So you could reasonably go in there and read all of Dante's Inferno in a visual representation of Dante's Inferno. I'm sure if you paid enough, you, they'd let you go into Paradiso and Purgatorio. Yeah, You yeah. know what? If you want to join the Patreon and uh, sponsor us enough that we can all <laughs> hold a big event at that building, we can all read together and talk together about each one and each floor, go do that. We will, we will invest in that for the future. That's a good reminder. If you haven't yet, please do check out uh, our Patreon. We have three different tiers. Mm-hmm. They're very cutely named, but no... Bad feelings if you don't. So I need to go like apply myself with rigor to a with intellectual love. task. With love. With loving rigor. Thank you for listening. Join us again in two weeks when we talk about Muhammad by Maxime Rodinson. And if you want, you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Unburied Books. And now find us at Patreon. Woo! Have a good day, guys.
just going to insert a pause because there's a knock at my door. I knew this would happen. Oh, yeah. Just like Sesame Street here, um, the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you ask the question again? 